Welcome to a podcast on fire on Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain and the Victim. And we go back and examine Choi Hak's groundbreaking special effects extravaganza Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain to see whether its Chinese roots mixed with Western special effects know-how still has a place in Hong Kong cinema history. And Sammo Hung reverses kung fu comedy tropes while also making his characters rage and beat the crap out of each other in exemplary fashion in his 1980 movie The Victim. And my name is Kenny B, and with me out of state this time because he always uh, introduces himself as um, now in sunny Florida, but uh, with me is Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast on a road trip and nonetheless took time out of his uh, road trip schedule and uh, uh, family uh, family uh, schedule and hanging out schedule to be with us. So welcome, buddy. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be here. BI at home or on the road. Um, you know, I love talking movies. Cool. And uh, movies uh, in this case uh, that go pew, 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 like uh, Zoo does uh, to a degree. Slightly personal, so uh, you don't want to. If you don't want to answer this question, uh, you're free not to. Your uh, your special partner, your wife. Uh, d- do you uh, sync up in terms of like uh, Hong Kong cinema taste? So she likes uh, way different stuff than than you do. No, she's uh, she likes different stuff. I can get her to watch some of the bigger current stuff, but she's not that into going back and watching old movies of any kind, be they Hong Kong movies or. Um, uh, older Hollywood movies. She just wants to stay contemporary and current. And she has, um, you know, a variety of stuff that she likes. You know, we, we each have our inter- interests and then we have a bunch of stuff that we come together on. So it's great. You know, it's like she'll go off and watch some things of her own while I'm watching some stuff of my own. And then we'll come together at other times to watch stuff that we both love together. So therefore, she likes uh, Legend of Zoo better than Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain. <laughs> but I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, no, no not quite. Uh, that 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 movie. I I want to do a review of Legend of Zoo because I'm on record on saying that I'm probably the sole fan of that movie. Yeah, but uh, we we might drop some things into our discussion of it. But in the future, I want to discuss that movie because I rewatched it recently. I still like the pretty colors. I'm sorry, I do. I still like the pretty colors. So, uh, but anyway, uh, we are gonna get into it. There's some uh, brief uh, contact information there for you, um, and uh, you are listening to a podcast on fire on the podcast on fire network. If you like shows uh, on Hong Kong cinema, you've come to the right place. You're listening to one, but we also have shows on Korean cinema, Japanese cinema, category free cinema. We talk ninjas. We even do movies with commentary on them. So. Choose uh, your favorite uh, show and uh, what topic uh, suits you over at podcastonfire.com. If you have any questions or feedback, let us know podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Follow the handy buttons to our various presences on social media. You have a Facebook button, you have a Twitter button, you have an iTunes button if you want to subscribe to the show and have it delivered to you in a timely manner. And the final button is the Stitcher Radio one where you can stream us. And I review a variety of uh, Hong Kong movies such as these ones uh, in this episode over at SoGoodReviews.com I do small uh, video reviews at SleazyKVideo.com and I tweet a variety of nonsense over at at SoGoodReviews Paul, my friend, East Screen, West Screen everybody should know by now but uh, what's, um, even though it is my date episode but uh, what's uh, what's uh, going on in uh, 2017 in general are you busy doing the um, the summer season of uh, blockbuster movies or it's a light schedule for you during the summer? No, we've been pretty good um, keeping up with shows from week to week. Uh, we've tried to bounce around and cover a variety of different things. I do like to branch off and talk about Asian stuff when I get a chance to. So if I can't see a current Hong Kong film, 
um, which is difficult because of distribution and, and the way they release things in terms of scheduling. I do try and, you know, catch up on other stuff that I get access to. We recently did an episode on the uh, Bahubali 1 and 2, this big sort of Telugu, Telugu uh, Indian epic that we both really, really enjoyed. And I've uh, been trying to catch up on some Japanese cinema, a lot of Japanese anime and other things I can get access to until I can get fully caught up on Hong Kong stuff. Kevin takes you know charge of the Hong Kong stuff and we both enjoy Hollywood blockbusters for the most part as well. We try and get and see those and we coordinate to start, decide what we're going to be talking about for East screen film and for our West screen film each week. Maybe uh, in the future, uh, because at the time of recording, um, the following movies available. So maybe in the future you can do a dual review of uh, something current uh, Asian, although this is Korean, because uh, uh, Bong Joon-ho's movies, Okja, just hit uh, Netflix. Uh, so maybe you can do a dual review of that. Yeah, I think that's actually we're going to be doing that for the coming episode at the time of recording. That's definitely been slated on our schedule. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the director. I still have some movies to check out, but obviously Memories of Murder is a great, great, great film. But uh, many people like The Host, many people like Snowpiercer. I wasn't a big fan of The Host necessarily, but um, haven't seen Snowpiercer. But uh, Memories of Murder is um, up there with um, one of the best Korean movies ever made. And uh, Dark... And also very funny, which speaks to Bong Joon-ho's uh, style, that he, like Hong Kong filmmakers, he's not afraid to mix it up uh, within each movie. Uh, silly, serious, uh, devastating, deal with it all <laughs> when it comes to his cinema. And Okja sounds like he's got the freedom to uh, play with moods, because Netflix apparently uh, interferes little to not at all, as far as I... Because you, your discussions with Kevin has suggested that Netflix, they are the money people, but they believe in uh, filmmakers and makers to uh, do their thing, you know, essentially uninterrupted. So um, ho- hopefully Okja is an example of that. Yeah, indeed. And I will throw a, a, a sort of support behind Snowpiercer. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely one to watch. Well, well at least it isn't uh, a project that a Korean director or Asian director was hired to do that's out of his or her wheelhouse uh, where they just sort of hired. Uh, the Last Stand, by all means, was merely Kim Ji-woon being hired to direct an Arnold movie. Snowpiercer seemed more Korean in intent. And I, and, and I think it was co-produced by CJ anyway. So it, it wasn't uh, this uh, sort of director goon for hire to make uh, a purely American film. Uh, so uh, hopefully there's some personality left uh, left uh, there on, on the screen. But uh, at any rate, uh, we're going to take a small promo break. And after that, we'll be back to discuss two warriors from the Magic Mountain, Choi Hak's uh, special effects movie from 1983. So we'll listen to one of the spots from our friends in the podcasting community. And we'll be right back. The following message is a paid advertisement for The Cult of Muscle podcast. The Cult of Muscle. You're either in it or you're dead. It's the dawning of a new age. The halls of Valhalla have been shuttered. The heroes of yore have either retreated to the shadows or taken to capering for the amusement of the small folk. Their past glory is a distant memory. The barbells have been torn from their once puma-strong grips. The beards shone from their square jaws, only to be transplanted onto flannel-clad, puny weaklings with fingers barely powerful enough to strum a ukulele. The time has come, my brothers, to restore order from the chaos. No longer will our heroes be forgotten. No longer will their great deeds be viewed through a foggy lens of irony. Hear now our rallying cry as we scream it from the mountaintops. 
as we bellow it from iTunes and Libsyn and Facebook. It's time to join the cult, my brothers. So don your cloaks and enter the cult of muscle. And welcome back in the first review of this episode of Podcast on Fire is Sue, Warriors from the Magic Mountain from 1983 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows. Yun Byu is T. Ming Chi, a random warrior caught in the pointless battles between warring Chinese clans. Somehow he finds himself allied with his reluctant Sifu, Ting Yin, played by Adam Chiang, as they undertake a quest to seek out legendary twin swords, which are the only weapons that can possibly stop the arrival of an all-consuming evil. Aiding our heroes are a number of familiar faces. Damien Lau and Mang Hoi play a pair of warrior monks, and Sama Hong is Longbrow, who entreats uh, Ti Ming Chi to seek when trusts uh, teaming Chi to seek between twin swords, and a young Bridget Lim plays the mistress of the Jade Pool Fairy Fortress. So a little cost, uh, cost to drop some cost, uh, cost notes in there as well. But there's your good versus evil story in a nutshell. So let's throw it over to you, Paul. In short, uh, what do you think of uh, Choi Hak's Sue? Yeah, it's a classic film for sure. It's one that I came to quite late uh, in my Hong Kong cinema viewing because I think when I started really getting into Hong Kong cinema in 88. You even remember the year. That's amazing. I've I've actually forgotten my year. It's 94 or 95 or 96, I think. I remember seeing some special documentaries talking about all this insane, these insane movies from Hong Kong, and they showed clips from this, and they showed clips from uh, Chinese Ghost Story and, um, you know, Chow Yun-Fat movies and other things. And over the years, I'd managed to see all of the things they showed in terms of like these brief scenes, mm-hmm. except Zoo. I had a very difficult time in getting a hold of Zoo until I think a couple years before I came to Hong Kong and then I finally got to got to watch it. And of course, you know, even at that time where special effects had already progressed so far, it's still a spectacle and, and very entertaining to watch. And a film that really broke a lot of boundaries in what it was doing in terms of visuals trying to you know push forward visuals and moving away from kind of what people came to expect in the 70s shaw era yeah for sure and i mean for for me it's sometimes i feel it's more essential than a thorough classic uh, but make no mistake that this is a blast of a movie uh, the storytelling is standard fantasy stuff but uh, choi hark and crew uh, start you know they, they mix what they already knew about effects and action and visuals but then aided that with some of their own new ideas, of course, but also contributions by some Star Wars dudes, as we'll uh, probably uh, name drop throughout the discussion. It's uh, yet another Choi Hak movie that elevated uh, matters technically, and he was not done doing so in 1983. Um, he would uh, spearhead uh, like a head development in many areas of Hong Kong cinema. One of many reasons I like. Choi Hak also likes when he just puts on a batshit crazy show in terms of <laughs> cinema. You know, I, I rewatched watched Time and Tide recently. That's wild stuff, man. <laughs> you know, only John Woo, I think, has ended a movie with a one-hour action sequence. Time and Tide does, but in Choi Hak, sort of, I'm going to take my crazy pills, and now I'm going to direct. And that's what happens with Time and Tide. It's, wow, so, so dizzying, but uh, in a good way. And speaking of that, is coherency or lack of it ever an issue for this movie and for you, considering this is based on 
and I think it's based on a wuxia novel, but certainly made in the wuxia pian tradition. Um, you know, so is that ever a problem for you uh, for the, for this movie, uh, considering how much goes on? You know, I think looking back, because I'd encountered films that have had much stronger narrative structure, like a Chinese ghost story, and other films first, and then coming to this, you can see that there's definitely some aspects that are very disjointed in terms of some of the pacing, some of the editing that goes on. I mean, there are characters who basically meet up with each other at one point and then they leave. And then like the very next scene, they're like meeting up again. And it's like literally seconds have passed. But I think there's... What an adventure we just had. (laughs) You know, I think there's supposed to be an expectation by the audience that, okay, actually more time has passed. Mm -hmm. But because of the way narrative storytelling works on the big screen, especially for a Western audience, they may not get that sense. Yeah, it's for, for me, it's so basic in terms of good versus evil uh, that it, it never becomes incoherent. It's not one of those uh, frustrating but still fun movies from Shaw Brothers that Cho Yun often directed based on the based on the Gulong novels where it's just twisty, turny, and just impossible to follow, but you watch it for that reason. But also, it's fun and creative visually and all of that. And But, but I, I never really had a problem with Sue in that regard uh, i mentioned that choi hak was uh, like an innovator and uh, he set the trends and uh, ignited trends in hong kong it's a uh, any spontaneous thoughts on uh, that part of his career where uh, the innovator in choi hak no, i think he's you know as we've talked about in in aspects before he likes playing with special effects um you know you can see that in some of his work on the aces go places series he sometimes does that at the expense of the story though i mean he he gets sometimes caught up in the visual storytelling and i think he maybe i i wouldn't i wouldn't say he mishandles uh, the narrative but sometimes the narrative plays second fiddle or at least the the flow of storytelling yeah thankfully it's uh, on a movie to movie basis that it's not uh, constant in the cinema because he, he he can tell stories i mean you, you have once upon a time in china that isn't just kung fu kung fu kung fu and a lot of flying it has subtext and what have you and obviously shanghai blues which is my favorite choi hak movies uh, has special effects but more subtle ones and therefore he focuses on the romantic comedy slapstick waka waka type of time that it is and a delightful time as well so uh, he's a fun guy i always like listening to him speak because he admits to going uh, nuts when making movies and being very nasty on the set sometimes and then when you're hearing in person he 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 can laugh at himself because he, he just knows he sinks into that creative mode to get things done and maybe burns has burned some bridges along the way. I don't know. I haven't heard any such stories. But uh, I'm a big, big fan of it, especially when uh, you know when visuals go into overdrive. Because I know even if a particular movie is uh, doing that at the expense of the storytelling, as you said, at least at least that's fun, and at least there's other parts of his filmography where he is focusing on being the storyteller. So. Yeah, I, I certainly don't um, don't mind that. I love the trajectory, by the way, when he started directing. Uh, you know, starting with uh, Butterfly Murders, which is uh, quite a tough movie to follow. It is in the Wu Xiaopian tradition too, but it's a very cool and creative uh, visual ride. You got a Hong Kong cannibal uh, kung fu movie. We're going to eat you. Here after that, you got some zany old timey gangster stuff with George Lam and Hold the Wrong Clues, and now. With Zoo, where he uh, jumped over to Golden Harvest, uh, which was, you know, a production entity that I'm sure could reach out, just like Cinema City could reach out to uh, 
foreign talent, uh, technical talent or uh, acting talent. And um, that's uh, certainly what we uh, what we got here. They, they uh, employed the services of, I'm going to scroll down so I can get the notes uh, uh, proper, uh, a couple of um, guys who worked on uh, Star Wars to... For for me, I think they they didn't work on the whole movie. For me, for me, it seems like they worked on more of the last third of the movie because the special effects go into such an overdrive that I I've not seen in a Hong Kong movie before. So that's my theory. But anyway, uh, what the person they persons they got was uh, Robert Blalock, which is uh, the visual effects consultant on Sue and also did optical photography on Star Wars: A New Hope. Of course, Peter Curran. Uh, also consultant and uh, I mean he's worked on pretty much every movie you like that has special effects right <laughs> like look at Peter Coran and you, you can see 20 movies that you like and adore um, and uh, he did uh, miniature and optical effects on Star Wars as well so that uh, is uh, it's uh, sort of um, it's sort of a favorite cap that they imported talent to, I think, help rather than create it all. Or, or, or what do you think? Uh, do you think the Star Wars guys worked on parts of the effects uh, work here in Zoo? It's hard to get a sense, too. Um, we've both listened to Zoe Hark's commentary on working with them a little bit. And elsewhere, I've read that they kind of were brought on as you know teachers mm-hmm. to sort of teach Zoe's crew how to do certain things and so that they could then go on and do them later in, in future films. So it, I guess it's hard to really say, well, how much of a hands-on input did they have rather than sort of an advisory role? I remember Chohak mentioned a couple of shots were were done by Peter Coran. Like he, he, he mentioned like that the t- uh, whirling shot that's in the background of the um, lightsaber finale was apparently shot, uh, uh, he, he shot a sink. Uh, like uh, water in a sink and then gave that to the production so i guess they worked a little bit uh, uh, hands-on so to say yeah and of course when you get to the sort of finale at the end when they get to the two swords um it, it becomes kind of clear some of the some of the effects ideas that are being borrowed or learned i should say yeah but i think i mean the credit is visual effects consultant so uh, that's uh, certainly um Certainly possible that they did that. The trailer shows that they them having a meeting, you know. Uh, so uh, they, they were proud of the fact that they got the Star Wars talent um, on on board here. I, I, I mean, Hong Kong or Taiwan, they weren't incapable of doing this. Um, even back in the seventies, uh, with in camera special effects, but still, you know, visual creativity. But as the eighties opened up, I think uh, Hong Kong got more and more confident using. Uh, optical effects and creating optical effects and I mean close to Sue you have a movie like Taylor Wong's Buddha's Palm made at Shore Bros one of the most incoherent effing movies you, you'll ever see but it's great uh, I mean it's such a um, numbing almost special effects extravaganza but it showed that Hong Kong had uh, you know local uh, local talent they could lean uh, lean on and uh, I think also the uh, the quite charming, depending on the generation you are, but you and I are sort of of the generation where the the charming aspect of uh, effects mixed with physical sets and objects and miniatures and what have you, that is present here. We uh, so it's not all drenched in effects like the sequel was Legend of Sue. I mean, Le- Legend of Sue. As much as I like it, if we're being honest, it's ninety percent special effects and ten percent actors. That's not going to play well with all audiences, especially those looking for a traditional time, uh, mixing more physical elements. Uh, is that something you respond to when uh, when it is using uh, 
when it is making its movie a bit more physical and uh, putting in opticals as well, you know, that merge and mixture. Yes, I think, I mean, obviously you can look at it and point to some things and go, oh my gosh, that looks very dated or unrealistic. But at the same time, I think when it comes to actors reacting to things, at, at least they're reacting to a thing, right? They're mm-hmm. not looking at, at, a, at a golf ball or a ping pong ball and being told to, okay, now imagine this big thing that you don't really have an idea of what it looks like. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine Aiken Chang and Lewis Koo having <laughs> yeah. the time they had on Legend of Zoo? Now I react to this thing I got from my imagination because that movie's yeah. crazy, man. Like the amount of things that come out of someone at the computer or Choi Hak's mind is just, uh, okay. Someone is having a good time in their head right now. And I, I mean, they're, they're, it's it's a big old green screen, blue screen movie that as much as I like it, there's barely any physical stuff going on. Yeah. In that and it's interesting, too, because in in the commentary track for Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, he does talk a little bit about his experience working on um, the Legend of Zoo and having to work with people who do computer effects. And he does not really seem like he enjoys that process very much because it seems like, you know, he goes to them with an idea and they come back to him with something else. And it's like, okay, that's what I got to go with, I guess. But at the same time, I mean, you can see that he has kind of honed since Legend of Zoo, the application and, and the integration and the use of that, at least I think in terms of Getting more of his own vision, you, again, you look to films like, uh, later films like um, Detective D and The Mystery of the Phantom Flame or the Detective D prequels, and you still get quite a bit of CGI more so than, than practical stuff. But at the same time, I think it's, um, it's a lot less sort of interposing and, and sort of taking the forefront away from the actors than Legend of Zoo, which was around that time period, you know, when you were making this transition you know, they'd had movies like Storm Warriors, which I think did a better job of applying a, a sort of combination. Is Warriors the first of a second one? Isn't Riders the first one, right? Uh, sorry, Storm Riders. Yeah, Storm Riders. And so, you know, you had this film that was able to find a good balance for the period. Um, and then and and then Legend of Zoo just kind of went and they said, we're just going to throw in everything. Yeah, well, well that is what happens with Choi Huck, for better or worse, that it, when he gets into visual mode and that he just throws as much as he can on the screen, again, time and tide, it, it's not an effects movie, but the, the stuff he does with the camera, there is like five movies uh, in terms of setups and creativity in one. It's just, he, he cranks it sometimes, for better or worse. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan when he does crank it because I just find it funny. Um, but uh, in terms of Sue, uh, I mean, the openings and things, uh, you know, costumes and weapons, uh, that's the stuff they can do. Uh, so the ground fighting, the battle scenes at the top of the movie that presumably takes place on on Earth, you know, on actual human ground, that, that is their bread and butter, but it isn't what uh, Choi Hak and action directors are focusing on. So so we don't get any cool battle scenes, essentially. It's it's when the imagination of Choi Hak kicks in that we get to the good bit. So uh, n- not that the lead in to him uh, starting to experience this uh, this universe, this mountain range is uh, boring or anything because we obviously get uh, Sammo Hong as a cameo. There's a couple of um, uh, funny bits in the uh, battle scenes where um, Sammo Hong and Yun Byu, they act uh, dead and they talk to each other like, how long are we going to stay like this? until it's over. And then some other guy speaks in the background as well. So they realize that they're not the only ones. 
with the idea of uh, playing dead in the battlefield and and that's all um, enjoyable but clearly it feels like the more quickly made uh, aspect of the movie that uh, we're gonna get this out of the way quickly so you, you can get into a cave and then we're gonna start to do stuff that we possibly haven't done as much uh, before yeah you know i think revisiting this opening sequence i have a much greater appreciation for it than i did in sort of the first watch through because of that very thing i remember i think thinking the first time like okay well i've seen big battles before this is you know, this is nothing spectacular, but going through this time, I just realized, I think that the attempt here was not really to focus so much on the battle or the, you know, the dynamics of a big, you know, extra filled choreographic sequence, but really on the sort of ludicrousness of this idea that, you know, you have the blue side and the red side and the green side and the yellow side, and you have these leaders who are just totally ridiculous i mean we get introduced to yun biao's character basically because these two generals have an argument and one wants him to do one thing and the other wants him to do the other thing and since he can't agree with either side without offending the other side they all decide they're not going to go and do their original attack they're going to get both their armies to chase poor yun biao <laughs> then it builds into this sort of almost a keystone cop style thing where he encounters samo and the two of them don't really want to fight and they're just trying to get out of the whole thing alive. And it's humorous at the same time, but it's also kind of a commentary. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, you know, some of the attitudes reflected in Jackie Chan's movie, Little Big Soldier, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's it's very much the idea that these ground level, that, you know, you have these ground level troops who really just, they don't care about what these generals want. They just want to stay alive, right? And they're going to do what they need to do to do that. So I think he plays off some of the darker humorous aspects of that here. And yeah, you're right. He's not really interested in, you know, putting a lot of money into this sequence. The costumes aren't that spectacular. The general's costumes look a bit plasticky. Yeah, it looks like a, a like a little bit of a, a well-made theater production by like a, a fifth or sixth grade. Right, <laughs> fifth right. or sixth graders, because they they look kind of uh, light these costumes. But you, you you're right. Like the subtext is there, and the nuance is there. Uh, it's very spoken of. It's spoken of very clearly in the movie, so it, it never reaches any dramatic poignancy. But I, I very much agree. I, I agree. I, I like that these ideas are present because they are sound ideas to speak of. And to have Yumbu there is, you know, we we get we get such a fast introduction. So you wonder, are we going to relate to him? And I think my the sort of eye opening aspect for this viewing was the fact that Yumbu brings the perspective of the human. To all of this, especially as he falls deeper and deeper into the world of Zoo, this crazy fast-paid frenzy world of Zoo, and that's new to him. You know, he's the wide-eyed human that asks questions and uh, sees things from an external perspective. Like, why is it like this? You know, why? Why are you? Uh, you know, why are you fighting him? Or, uh, you know, why are these people enemies? So that's uh, again nothing dramatically that Choi Hak spends uh, half an hour on. But I do think that that's the effectiveness of the Yumbu uh, performance and character here. Even though performances tend to be a little bit anonymous because this is mainly a special effects movie. But uh, it isn't buried in special effects that um, call it subtext or theme uh, and what have you. And and I can appreciate that. I mean, were you sort of, uh, when you watch the performances, were you like, oh man strong acting or are they just functional performances for reaction and uh, effects and what have you and a little bit of a subtext i don't think they were going for any 
best actor awards <laughs> in this film, to be sure. But Yun Bio's character is fairly relatable throughout most of the film as kind of the everyman who gets sucked up to this domain of, you know, immortals and, and demigods and is trying to make sense of why, with all their powers, they don't do more to help mankind and then comes to kind of realize, well, basically, they're no, not much different. They're just in, in, invested in their own battles, just like the generals down below are invested in their own battles and and not really looking out for the, the betterment of everybody. I'm glad such elements are able to be interpreted considering we're dealing with Wu Xiaopian here, which is can be impenetrable. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad that some of these things um, stand out. Uh, um, I, I don't have a pure sense of the geography in terms of how far away the, the world of Zoo is versus uh, our Earth, because Yumbu doesn't uh, he, you know, he falls down a mountain and then into a, then goes into a cave and there starts, uh, you know, the adventure encountering Adam Chang. So it seems like the, these worlds are not far apart, uh, which is an interesting piece of geography you can play with in your head. Well, you know, it's interesting because this is based on a, a physical place, but it's also a very a spiritual place. And this, I think, ties into a little bit of the sort of Buddhist concept of you know, you have different realms, you have the realm of humans, you have the realm of animals, you have the realm of immortals, you have the realm of the higher deities, you have the, real, the, the, the hell realm, the realm of the hungry ghosts. So it's possible there are places where the realms kind of intersect. And it's not just a case of necessarily walking like up a mountain. But, you know, there are other mountains like um, Wasan, which is the mountain that's very frequently spoken of in... Um, uh, the Condor Heroes saga, and you've got like, uh, uh, what's the other one? Omesan, I think, where, you know, and, and on these mountains, you have legends of immortals living there, but it's also this realm, you know, it's kind of like Mount Olympus in Greece, right? Where, okay, it's a physical place that maybe people could see, or, but it's also a spiritual place that's maybe, you know, an idea that to be there, to actually be there in that realm, you either have to have somebody kind of pull you up or, you know, you make your way there accidentally. So it's kind of not that clear cut in terms of it. Is it, you know, truly tangible or are you kind of entering a, a, a different kind of spiritual plane of existence? I, I, I kind of like that geography. That It, it, it felt uh, a little bit new to me. Normally, the, the worlds, if, if someone travels between worlds, they, they are so separate, you know, uh, Know, between heaven and earth essentially so quite like that uh, the the big uh, sort of introduction to more advanced special effects more advanced wire work and uh, maybe a, a, an explosion of more imagination that's been seen uh, seen before by most audiences to take place as you imbue meets uh, adam chang and damian lao and mang hoi and uh, meeting all these uh, variety of evil characters that's also played by a lot of people we like and know I mean, there's a lot to talk of, so I, I certainly won't talk of everything. But I just want to ask in, in, in general, like when the movie starts to kick off in that cave, in that dark environment and the variety of uh, wire techniques and effects that Choi Hak throws at us, is, um, is that signaling, signaling that Sue is on to something, you know, uh, for you? Or, or what do you want to say about uh, this big long stretch? Yeah, I think so. I mean, right off the bat, it kind of shifts gears into getting into a very spooky tone pretty quickly. Yunbio is kind of like taken refuge in this temple and there's something in there with him. And the practical effects they do for this thing 
are pretty great. They still hold up pretty well. It's pretty spooky looking. It's basically just like a cloak with a set of eyes. Um, it's been described as somewhat Jawa-esque, you know, or kind of looking like a Star Wars Jawa. If no one thinks of that, then you're kind of delusional because it's clearly yeah. it clearly is where it came from. Choi Hako, his visual consultants, like, hey, a new hope. We had we had some guys that the, the way they do it. I mean, they do this thing where it kind of sneaks back in inside this bell, and you just see the eyes peering out. It looks mm-hmm. really great. And yeah. then some of the some of the shots where they have this thing kind of just shoot out suddenly. It's it's it really looks good on screen. I think I think so. I mean. They it's objects and, and puppets on wires and which is their bread and butter it's something that's not out of the realm of possibility for them to do but I think the key for me is uh, and I think it applies to a lot of Chohak cinema it is a fast edited pace to almost any event and fast edited pace in this case isn't akin to incoherency and a camera that doesn't catch all of this. For me, it's um, when I start to settle into a very comfortable place because I'm, I, I like the physical aspect and the fast pace of whatever Choyak introduces uh, to us um, because it all starts to show a tuned sense um, of uh, technical filmmaking, you know, again with uh, uh, objects on wires and using puppets and and that they all know what to do, you know, trained or not, by the Western talent. They 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 know what to do within each edit to make it fast. And uh, maybe sometimes it is so fast that you can't wrap your head around what it is you're seeing. Just that it is something n- new that you don't have a reference for. But these characters are ready to battle. Um, well, the characters that know of these dangers, they are ready to battle these uh, these threats and Yumbu are trying to avoid them. And I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but it's a it's a sort of a theme throughout my notes that when Choiha cranks matters in, in, in this one and, and also invites us into this sort of um, world that holds new imagination for, for a fantasy Hong Kong movie, I can't think of anything to complain about. And, and you're right, no effects look really shoddy. I mean, if anything looks shoddy, it's the latter green screen work, because they're not, I mean, green, the nature of green screen work is that it's going to look a little bit pasted in, but I've seen newer movies that do it on the same level, even worse. Age doesn't mean that you're automatically at the end of the line, uh, if you will. Yeah, there's a couple shots, I think, that don't hold up quite so well. There's, uh, you have this group called the Evil Cult that shows up in a temple, and there's a temple fight at one point. And they do this kind of formational maneuvering, which if you've seen things like, you know, Cayman Riders or Power Rangers or stuff, you know, where the group has to sort of get in a super more formation. I think they did it in like the Swordsman movie. So the evil guys are kind of jumping around to get in their formation and they're doing flips and somersaults in place. And they've got big flags that they're waving of their, you know, evil cult banner and and. They're all on wires, I think. But so during this sequence where they're bouncing around on these wires uh, in place, basically, I guess it didn't look quite as smooth as one long take. So they decided to chop it up. And, and it is it is very choppy uh, as you see them kind of move around into position. And that sequence for me didn't work quite so well. But then later you get sequences where characters such as Adam Chang's character or Damien Lau's character kind of leap up in place and then suddenly they are horizontal and then they're flying forward and those sequences tend to have a much smoother transition overall and and work a lot better 
you 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 set me off air, but uh, I, I want to hear still explain as good as you can to listeners. Uh, um, you know, on the flip side, when when the Wire crew are doing an amazing job, where we we see obviously Adam Chang has been introduced here, and uh, one of the persons in the evil cult is uh, Corey Yoon. Uh, even behind the makeup, you can see it's Corey Yoon. And, and you you mentioned to me a very complex Wire shot that kind of took you uh, not by surprise, but uh, made you go even so many years down the line made you go wow. Yes, there's a sequence where I guess it's uh, Corey Yoon as this evil leader. He basically starts out flying the camera. He flies towards the camera to do an attack. The camera pans and then he flips backwards as he's flying horizontally. And the camera's like down at a lower shot now. And it's still one take. He flips backwards and he is pulled up and his feet land on the ceiling and then Adam Chang's character moves into frame. And so you've kind of got this worm's eye view upward of Adam Chang's character in the foreground looking up at Corey Yoon's bad character, standing on the ceiling, and then shooting a lightning bolt. And the thing is, is he's on a physical ceiling. And I could, for the life of me, I, I guess they had tracks in the ceiling because I could not understand how they did that shot. Uh, the lighting is such that they know what they're doing. You don't see any wires. And it's just an amazing, you know, one long take where they he goes from basically Superman style flying horizontally, flipping upside down, standing on the ceiling, and then executing this lightning attack in one shot. And Adam Chang's there in the frame. It's amazing, even by today's standards. It's an amazing piece of, of wire work and uh, a very nice thing to look at visually. And it, I think you see a couple of examples of more extended flying on wires uh, you know at one point uh, they even make one character turn mid-air and i think it's not a uh, shot that's cut up into pieces or anything so i i, I reacted to that even though i don't stop and pause because you, you just want to want to enjoy the flow of it and sometimes you don't appreciate consciously what went on i'm glad you extracted that shot because i've i've seen it a bunch of times but i've never stopped to really wow wow what did i do there because it, it's it's uh Chohak is just asking us to be on this ride that he shoots clearly my favorite shot i think uh, is this uh, mix of physical and effects work where damien lao pushes this uh, physical burning log that's a light thing but it's still on fire and maybe when it's time to push it, it's a stuntman, but he pushes that onto, or rather into either Fung Hak on or Kor Yun, who absorbs it into their body and it disappears, essentially. And that's an effect that needs to be done with a cut somewhere, or, uh, you know, they need to print the film to make sure that thing, that log goes away. But it's done so smoothly. I mean, do you remember that shot, uh, shot in particular where he absorbs the, the burning log? Yes, absolutely. And the, for to his credit, as we listened to, I think, in the commentary, Damien Lau, I, I'm guessing they had something to help him because this thing is huge. It yes. looks like, you know, he's, he's holding this huge, huge, long flaming. It kind of looks like a flaming sword in some ways, but just this long flaming beam. And he's swinging this around and it's on fire. It's really on fire. And, and you know, so Damien Lau is there next to this big flaming thing. 
it's not a fire effect or anything like that. It's just he's there, he's game, and let's go light it up and let's get the shot. And he's not an action guy; he's an actor. Well, well, he can do action, but he's not, uh, you know, a stuntman originally. You know, uh, Damien, as as they also mentioned in the commentary, is a very underrated actor uh, too. Uh, and and I'm sure he's still on TV and uh, what have you. But uh, that's always um, my, my ears perk up uh, whenever I see Damien in a movie. I want to mention that uh, I mean, as it's not, it's an artificial world and it's enhanced by special effects. But I kind of like when they, uh, it it may look cheap, as a matter of fact. But I think uh, I like when they are out in daylight and out in the world, you know, amidst physical environments. At one point, you and you and Mang Hoi, they are by a little river and a stream, and uh, there's some comedic stuff with the fish and what have you. And 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 we see the introduction of Bridget Lin's character here in daylight uh, for this viewing I, I kind of like that they made the world uh, real it's not a big uh, green screen thing that the, this world has daylight this world has physical elements and nature that we recognize and these characters occupy this uh, space and new ones turn up in long colored uh, garments and uh, are possessing uh, powers and shooting lightning bolts and what have you and that, that's part of the world it, so it's not just uh, you know, Legend of Zoo artifice or anything where the, the, this world is, which I still like. But uh, I appreciate it that we, we, we get some sense of, uh, even when he's up uh, running around in, in zoo, if you will, Yumbu and what have you, that we got something akin to our Earth. Uh, it looks like our Earth, if you will. It's not like vibrant cinematography or anything, because it looks like they're outside and it's shot in a very plain way. But uh, I, I kind of got a kick out of... Um, the physical elements of um, of that, you know. Any spontaneous notes on uh, Bridget Lynn um, as this uh, whatever characters wa- character was, uh, you know, the mistress of the Jade Pool fairy fortress kind of a thing. But she was always an icon even before she started working with uh, Choi Hark and logged iconic performances. And uh, I mean, m- many people point towards Swordsman Two, uh, but but any most movies she was in, she was an icon, whether it was fantasy or not. But uh, Choi Hark certainly you know made her hong kong career anyway take off in a big bad way and uh, i I don't know if she made a huge impression on audiences but certainly she looks made for this kind of uh, genre you know so uh, what do you think of her whether whether you like her in this movie or not yeah i think this movie does kind of establish some things as you as you mentioned when when she shows up the first time on on the screen she's kind of in this red getup which is again very sort of indicative of things to come when you get to swordsman 2 and then of course uh, the east is red and i think the director even mentions at one point that this was this was just something that kind of an image that burned in his mind and then he's kind of saved for later on yeah because she never appears at all like that in in latter scenes it almost it almost seems like that's another version of her or someone possessing her like uh like adam cheng is possessed too but uh, because it certainly does not go in line with costume choices because she's more light tones and light blue tones uh she has that later on in the movie yeah, in that, that particular sequence, if I remember the dialogue correctly, they said that uh, it wasn't her, it was the evil cult leader, basically, or, or who had been taken over by this big evil now, I guess, right. who had transformed to look like her to fool them somehow. And it was a narrative point that, uh, again, not it was great, great visual imagery, but not one that was really entirely clear as it's kind of plotted out for the for the audience um it's it's one that can you can kind of easily miss 
if they stumble a little bit, I think they start to recapture uh, um, a momentum once they uh, get to the real Bridget Lynn and the the set of the um, uh, the uh, you know the Jade Pool fairies or whatever. I, I know I'm not uh, no I don't know these names per, per se because a lot of times they just throw tons of names of uh, people and things at us in in these uh, kind of movies. But but I certainly enjoy the the concept and uh, the what happens when both Damien Lau and Adam Chang are slowly but surely taken over they uh, paint their uh, faces in uh, silver paint or uh, something akin to silver paint and uh, they uh, they sit there meditating as they try to uh, ward off this evil and and at one point uh, explosions looking like squibs but they aren't squibs they're they're, they're they're explosions of light that goes off in Adam Cheng's, uh, well, all over Adam Cheng's torso. And that uh, manifestation of how evil is slowly taking him over is um, kind of great, I think, because, again, it's a physical element that they, you know, they, they, they make it mostly physical. It's not, like, effects enhanced. Uh, they just blow scripts up minus, minus blood and just have some light uh, shooting out of him or whatever. And... Uh, Within all of that sequence, you get like uh, these uh, women sh- shooting uh, projectiles, whether arrows and garments or energy bolts, and all in this gorgeous set. Uh, this uh, hall with stone statues of both, uh, uh, you know, deities or gods and elephants as well. So I think it's a uh, probably the standout set that they um, that they give us because uh, because of the detail. I think like like the uh, mural. Uh, of uh, a variety of things uh, is quite impressive even though the set might not be as big in real life uh, necessarily but uh, any thoughts on uh, when the movie kicks into gear using Bridget and all the girls and all the effects and the possession and <laughs> things like that is that fun yeah it's fun it's it's very reflective too I think of the kind of narrative plot points that were popular for comic books for tv dramas for you know the works of uh, again, going back to stories like the Condor Heroes, you always have these uh, elements where, you know, a character gets poisoned and then he has to go find some master in a high mountain and then this is the only master who can cure them and it's a long process and there's chi exchange and and sometimes, you know, they do the whole transfer of knowledge and power, uh, at, you know, at one point and this kind of filters over into Yun Bu, moving him beyond sort of this everyman who doesn't really belong, who can't really you know, stand on his own in this place and then kind of elevates him up and, and continues that sort of progression towards the end of the film. The, the problem here with that kind of path, though, is that it always seems very fast in comparison with something like a comic series or a TV drama or novel series where a character has to undergo sort of a much longer process. So, you know, if you're familiar, for those who are familiar with, like, the path of a character like Guo Yi from... Return of the Condor Heroes, who basically just kind of starts out as a kid and, you know, he's kind of unskilled and then he meets the little dragon maiden and he gets he learns a couple moves. And over time, he gets more and more powerful and you get this sense of of progression, whereas here it's just like, 
with Yen Bu, it's like, okay, normal guy. And oh, wait, you know, now this thing happens and he's got a little bit more power. And nope, now this other thing happens and he, he's even more powerful. You you can't you can't uh, you can't blame Choi Hak for uh, for extending this movie certainly because it is below well it's like ninety four so, so so certainly that speaks to that that um, we don't have a lot of time to uh, throw they don't even throw in a montage it's not even that it's done in a, in a scene yeah yeah and I mean that's to say if you watch the the version that Leslie Chung did I think it's called Little Dragon Maiden where he's basically playing that character the Goyu character and and you know he basically become super powerful in the span of you know a couple hours so that's I have the power <laughs> yeah that that's the risk you take when you kind of try to compress these plot points that people recognize from other media and you want to put it into our movie that you're not you know at this time i don't think they were into much of the kind of sequelitis things that we would get later with the Better Tomorrows and the Chinese ghost stories and the Mr. Vampires and, and those kinds of things. No, it, it seemed like it, it had an end game, uh, this uh, story. It uh, wanted to you know, establish human conflict, uh, conflicts in, in the mountains, and then we all know, learn something by the end and fought some evil too. But I, I think it's also interesting to point out, um, you know, Adam Chang here, uh, for fans who may not know much about him as sort of this... Uh, character Ding Yan, he, he, this was a character that, you know, sort of the immortal scholar character, wandering swordsman, a very sort of recognizable archetype, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was one that he often got recognized for playing. I think he did some stage work as well. He was kind of like the Andy Lau of the earlier generation. You know, he was an actor, but he was also well known as a singer. He was married to Lydia Shum, right? Fei Fei. And uh, they were living together for a long time, I think, and they got married in 85. Um, father of Joyce Cheng, who we've talked about, you know, on um, shows like, uh, what was the last Dynasty Report we talked about, that girl? Uh, well, we had to skip, skip, skip Trace in one movie, and, and a special female force, action special force. Special female force, yeah. right, yeah, so she was in that. So they gave birth to her in 87, they divorced a couple months later, and so, you know, he's kind of always been sort of a high-profile um, celebrity figure, but for the kind of older generation, when I was coming up, this was probably the first sort of leading man-ish kind of role that I saw in him. And then later he would, uh, you know, start taking roles, you know, a bit older and he still worked. He was in Saving General Yang um, a couple years ago. It's, it's interesting too, because if you're not opposed to watching stage movies on film, He's got a 2001 thing called The Dark Tales, which is very similar in tone to this, right? To Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain and perhaps um, a little bit of a Chinese ghost story. And it was their attempt to do a stage production with this kind of level of art direction and special effects. Um, and it's available out there on DVD. I forget who does it. It's subtitled. It's got uh, Leda Lee as the co-lead and Perry Chu who switched between movie, doing movies and stage work a lot. Um, and if you get a hold of it, it's actually pretty, pretty good to watch it. And you can see him do stage work. You get to hear him sing too. And of course, it's always great to see uh, Leda Lee, whatever she's doing. The two or three movies I've seen Adam Cheng in terms of uh, swordplay movies, that, that certainly was his... Uh 
uh, ticket in life, but it always uh, quickly became a comfort present because it, it presents because it just seems like uh, he he is suitable as to be a swordsman of some kind. But de- then when you see movies like Patrick Tam's The Sword, which is one of my favorite Hong Kong movies ever, de- then it takes the swordplay movie of the Wu Shapian and its um, heroes or anti-heroes who are of the supremacy in the in the Jiang Hu in the swords world or martial world. And then they start to be a bit more introspective because the the sword is more about the, the pointlessness of it all. Just see, see, you know, when you have the most supreme sword in the world, well, what do you have? And it sounds so damn pretentious, but pa- Patrick Tam, at 80 minutes, mind you, it's a short-ass movie, gets some real cool nuance into that movie. Um, it's it's bloody and has some cool action, but um, if, if you want your sword play movie a little bit more introspective and uh, nuanced where they take a step out of themselves and uh, look at themselves externally and uh, say essentially, what does it all mean? Then the sword is um, a damn fine, a damn fine movie. Him and Norman Chu, uh, who appears in this movie in this ridiculous uh, uh, but, but wonderful uh, character character site where he's uh, attached to this uh, uh, rock, this boulder uh, with um, chains, and uh, he's carrying this uh, sort of a porcupine uh, porcupine uh, suit, if you will, which Choi Hak yeah. explained as that they didn't make it according to his specifications. They made that thing out of wood, and no, he couldn't move in that suit, which all which reminded me of Spinal Tap, uh, you know, <laughs> the Stonehenge, the Stonehenge fiasco. Not as bad as that, but it uh, was a wonderful story where yeah, I can't move. Like, what are you doing? Did you build it out of wood? Why? Uh, but uh, we, we want. Um, Talk too much about it, but but I think uh, the 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 finale with uh, as much special effects as we get there with the uh, blue screen or green screen photography, the lightsabers uh, and Yum Yu and Mang Hoi fighting the evil Adam Chang. There's a lot of really cool stuff here, animated effects as they shoot that at each other. But it's also the sections with so much opticals that that is when the movie feels more experimental and has not dated as well just because uh, you, you can see the seams a little bit more and uh, uh, characters seem more pasted in but largely it's a very fun sequence there's a wonderful shot where Adam Chang he I, I guess he twirls his uh, hand in a 360 motion and creates a, an energy bolt or a weapon like that and then shoots that at um, Yumbu or Mang Hoi off screen that looks great I think the visual consulting shows up here and it doesn't show up in a perfect way, but it—I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I can also f- feel that fantasy visuals—they're okay if they're a little ropey because we don't have a lot of reference for how these these would look. You can sometimes get away with slightly technically flawed things. That's why I like Legend of Zeus so much because even if you you're familiar with fantasy movies, there's a lot of things in there that you don't have a reference for. It's all so new and. Uh, it's clear cut to the characters what these powers are about, but not to us. And sometimes I find that very, very fascinating. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's where the Star Wars dudes, I think, show up a little bit more um, towards the end. Um, it, it does look a little dated in places, but I think it's you know fine for what they're trying to do. This idea of the two swords having to kind of come together and work together, with both kind of being disciples of. You know the 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 other master, as it were, um, works well. The, the the master relationship too, I think, is interesting to point out because fans of later films like um, I want to say Mr. Vampire Saga Four, for example, 
you'll see something here very familiar. You have the Adam Chang character who's very sort of Taoist by design. And then you have um, uh, Damien Lau's character who's like Buddhist and they argue constantly. They can't, you know, they've got different points of view on how to get things done. Um, but they also do attempt, you know, to, to go to the wall for each other and help each other out. Um, when the chips are down and you kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of this rivalry that is set up in that later film between um, Chan Yao's character and Wu Ma's character, right? With these opposing ideologies and these opposing approaches to, to doing things. But w when it comes down to it, they kind of have to band, band together and, and work together. And here you have kind of the manifestations of these ideas, putting their differences aside in the form of their two students and you know getting the you know the the dual swords and and coming together in, in contrast with i think legend of zoo one of the things they did that i thought was really great in legend of zoo was showing sort of the the formation of the two swords coming together i don't know if you remember that but it's towards the end when i think it's it's the celia chung's character and um it's Patrick Tam, Tam Yuman, right? It's either that or Wu Jing by that point. So, um, yeah. They kind of come together and they have to hold hands and it forms like this big sort of energy. So I always thought that that visual and, and that sort of approach rather than sort of like two physical swords was um, a really sort of interesting way to, to, to take that, an interesting direction to take that, going moving away from sort of the traditional idea of, oh, we have these two kind of, you know, magic swords and... But here, you know, I think it's fine and, and you get the visual effects that were appropriate for the time. Again, it's a little bit lightsabery. <laughs> they were trying, you know, they were trying to do the latest and greatest thing. And I think it's, again, it's interesting that he wants to put it in this sort of fantasy, fantastic Wu Shaping, which, you know, other directors might go, well, no, that's science fiction and this is fantasy. We mm -hmm. never, the two should meet, right? Yeah, exactly. I like it. It's an observation you make rather than rip off. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that. I know it's a long discussion, listeners, but we still have some some notes uh, because we, we want to be thorough. So I do I, I do apologize. So, so we we're gonna talk of the English language version in a, in a very very short bit. But I just wanted to say it's quite um, known. But uh, he's on record saying, uh, filmmaker John Carpenter, that he was very influenced by uh, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain as he crafted his classic Big Trouble in Little China. So um, by the mid eighties, uh, the cultural impact that Zoo had had reached. Um, the West to a degree where at least uh, filmmakers like John had uh, seen this and uh, thought that was inspiration he wanted to take in his own direction. So again, he's not uh, ripping off Sue or anything. He's not even set in that kind of world. It's uh, But, but it uh, has the, the, the notion of uh, of these kind of special effects and energy bolts and those kind of powers that was put into a big trouble in, in Little China to a degree. So I think that that's a perfectly valid and a marvelous uh, way of uh, taking your inspiration and making your own art and then and, and heck he cost uh, carter wong as well so we, we always had a hong kong connection um, in uh, big trouble uh james pax as well underneath uh, underneath those uh, straw hats but uh, uh the the uh the english language version it isn't as simple as they just dubbed it and shot it out into english uh, language uh, territories nope so what we have here on the dvd i have the hong kong legends uk dvd that features as an extra the 30 minutes of footage golden harvest shot for the international version known as time warriors uh, Choi Huck had uh, insisted to redo some of the special effects and also asked if he could direct the new footage. And in his own words, I was ignored. 
And also in his own words, I was pissed because uh, they uh, went ahead and they created uh, something he didn't approve of. They changed the plot into um, to feature a modern wraparound story where Yun Bu, as a modern-day fencing champion and a student of some kind, university student, goes back in time after a car accident. And uh, then so footage takes over, but obviously there's a lot of cuts uh, to it because it's not a two-hour movie uh, that uh, that we have now instead. Uh, Choi Hak has reportedly uh, never dared to look at this uh, footage, uh, so uh, you, you wouldn't blame me because it isn't as good <laughs> as the movie. It's mainly fascinating to me to watch because of how Golden Harvest perceived how this needed to be tailored to the West. And it's kind of goofy, desperate uh, to uh, to sort of make it um, make it approachable for Westerners, and amusing that the elements they place in modern times, how they want them to connect to the uh, events that happen in Sue, with uh, Moon Lee's character being there in the modern footage as well, and uh, how these are this is about past life or some nonsense like that. Uh, Yumbu even have, has a miniature version of uh, the Adam Chang sword that he receives in, in the movie. So uh, it, it's nothing good uh, at all. It, it, there's a decent Yumbu fight scene here, but also ham fisted romance and connection between Yumbu and uh, Moon Lee. Because th- their connection in Zoo wasn't about uh, being a romantic connection, uh, Moon Lee and Yumbu. So th- this is conjured up and made up for Time Warriors. Uh, granted, we don't have the context here. Um, to see the full edit job, but these 30 minutes, uh, uh, which includes a long-ass opening, uh, 25 minutes or so, it gives you an idea of how they tailored it for international audiences, and it um, it's kind of um, cheesy, but uh, I, I, I'm i not opposed to having uh, film history there and uh, film trivia there on the screen. I like that we got to see this, but uh, a good train of thought, well, not really, but uh, they did it, so there it is. And spontaneous thoughts on this uh, on this uh, footage with uh, the mighty Yumbu fencing his way into zoo or something. <laughs> yes, this is what producers sit around and, and do when they think about making films for the West because Americans are dumb. Westerners are dumb. You can't handle all the culture that's crammed into into the original. So we gotta we gotta first get a guy from the modern day who's a fencer and who is bullied by Western fencers in in very sort of two dimensional ways. And who comes across this mural and sees some pull because his professor said, oh, your paper's good, but you need to go to this history museum and take a look at the Tang Dynasty objects there or something. And he feels this, you know, this connection with this mural. And then, of course, he sees the girl, very girl from the mural, a modern day Moon Lee, who he then proceeds to basically go up and say hi uh, you don't know me, but uh, I really like you. And she <laughs> proceeds to get in his car and they proceed to to go home that very day and sleep together because that's what people do in the West, right? That's what that's the kind of thing they want. That's romance, right? And then, of course, uh, he has to go back and see the mural and the worst security guard ever tries to stop him. He's like, hey, you can't go in there. And he runs by him and then he chases him until he gets to the stairs. And the security guard just gives up. He's like, oh, okay. F, I'm, F I'm, this, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to like lunch. So, it's like so strange. Whoever wrote this, I think they just must have given it to like an intern uh, at the studio or something. I mean, it's such it's such bad writing. It's just unfathomable that so they thought they needed to spend the money, the extra money to throw this in there. And the, the sad thing is, is that, I mean, there is a fight scene. There's a, well, there, I think there's like two fight scenes. There's one where he's using a foil and fencing gear and a very Chinese 
swordsman like way and that's fine and there's another where he gets you know accosted by three guys and there's a bit of a some hand-to-hand stuff but it doesn't fit with the kind of choreography they're doing in zoe hark's you know uh, his film the, the zoo film proper and even the film stock is completely different so like the lighting Yunbyu's hairstyle everything looks completely foreign and just does not mesh well with the film at all you'd think it was shot within uh, like the same year but certainly afterwards uh, uh, after the production wrapped and and they throw in uh, one or two sequences and a finale that that only lasts for a few minutes in total just to that within zoo within the world of zoo that that's exclusive to this version but but it's nothing really that adds uh, uh, adds uh, amounts to anything in terms of our understanding of uh, certainly not anything we need because that connection between you and Moonlee is uh, as you described is like the approaching the most creepy creepy way to 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 conjure up romance in in movies like hi into the car and into the bed we go in in, in the film proper it's it's not a romance but it's kind of like a teasing tension that Moonlee has between both characters both you know Yunbiao's and yeah, both of their characters, and they play with it a couple times. They they tease it out, but there's no sense of like any romance. The only romance that's kind of really hinted at is between Bridget Lin and Adam Chang. Yep. And you know, but but by the end, if there's if there's one sort of big downside to the actual Soi Hark proper film is that the end there's no real epilogue. I mean, it's it's indicative of this era. The film just kind of ends. And, you know, so for those looking like, oh, well, they go on to do this and then this happens and they meet up and they're all friends and happily ever after. It doesn't really provide that. And I guess they figured that that's what a Western audience wants. And so they tack on this sort of extra thing at the end here. But it's not done well. I mean, so, yeah, they've given an epilogue here in in this cut, but it's it's not fulfilling. No, certainly not. Glad to have it. That adds to trivia, but uh, one would understand uh, Choi Haki if he, uh, if, uh, you know, in, in his own words, uh, those words are understandable that uh, I was pissed. He hasn't seen it, but I'm sure he would be even more pissed if he did see it. He just uh, was pissed that it was ignored. So, uh, but uh, that, that's uh, that's out there as an extra on the, on the disc. And as for availability, uh, CMS Media Limited put out a Hong Kong Blu-ray and Cameron Ronson did the remastered DVD of Sue in Hong Kong. The former has remix uh, options only and a few special features, such as an interview with Yumbu. I, I can't confirm because I don't have it uh, whether this is HD or not, but knowing that it is Fortune Star sourced, I'm willing to bet it's upscaled from standard definition. Uh, reportedly, the DVD, the Cameron Ronson uh, one, which is the only one that's listed in stock, the Blu ray isn't, uh, but the DVD contains a bonus disc with uh, deleted scenes, which is presumably the Time Warriors scenes. But if you can get it, uh, the special edition by Hong Kong Legends released in the UK contains not only those scenes but also interviews with Mang Hoi and Moon Lee and a uh, as for men- we mentioned it a Choi Hak audio commentary moderated by Bay Logan so it's uh, got some context in there and uh, some uh, fairly satisfying interview sessions but uh, we uh, we we almost did a full episode on it but it's a classic movie and uh, uh, certainly essential so it it, it deserves um, it deserves a breakdown but we are going to take a musical break now and uh, we're going to discuss uh, Samo Hong. He's in this movie, not a lot, um, uh, and uh, he wasn't on the set a lot either, but he's uh, certainly pulling uh, all the strings in his 1980 movie, The Victim, uh, So because he was the star and director. And uh, that's our review after a break, so sit tight. 
And welcome back, and a completely different movie, almost, uh, is going to be discussed now. Uh, Sammo Hung's movie The Victim from 1980, and plot from the Far East Films review of the film. The storyline follows a hapless drifter, played by Sammo Hung, who travels around looking for someone who is good enough to be his master. His various encounters with the fighters he meets leaves this mission unfinished, and the likely candidates clearly lacking. The devoted student finally meets an accomplished master, played by Lung Gaian, who proves himself worthy of this unusual privilege, in quotation marks. Uh, and the unimpressed master has no intention of taking Sam as, as his disciple, though, uh, and therefore concentrates his time on trying to rid himself of his new friend. His attitude changes when this young obsessive, played by Sam, becomes um, embroiled in the various family intrigue that the master had hoped to keep hidden. To this end, Samuel learns how his reluctant teacher has become the victim of a vendetta by his jealous brother, played by Chiang Yi, and he has uh, been on the run ever since. Uh, recent incidents mean that the running must finally end, and both fighters must finally face their oncoming enemies' hordes. So um, I'll, I have some stuff in my notes why I think this is um, a different kung fu comedy than most, that it reverses uh, tropes. Um, and, and I might as well do my quick opinion. Uh, it's enjoyable, very enjoyable, and features uh, Samuel's high-quality, fast, powerful action. And I enjoy said reversal of some of the tropes of the genre, uh, the kung fu comedy genre, and the primal, I'm, and I mean primal nature to especially the end fight. You know, if you want to see people beat the shit out of each other out of pure hate, you know, based on pure hate... Here's your movie, as uh, Long Gaian and Chiang Yi go at each other for the ending. And so, uh, in short, what, what, what do you think of uh, The Victim? Um, I think it's fine. I think it starts to push the some of the formula that Samo had been working with as a director up to this point, especially the focus on sort of duality of characters. You know, And I think that that kind of idea he'd done a little bit better in some of his earlier films, obviously, like Warriors 2, and others, and some of the... The duality of Dean Shek, you mean? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, the duality of Dean Shek, for sure. Uh, but but some, of the, some of the action sequences here are not quite as smooth. They're, they're actually chopped up a bit compared with some of the longer takes in, in films like Warriors 2 um, and uh, Iron Fisted Monk. I think that it's fine, though, in terms of, again, as you say, it's kind of trying to play with some tropes in a slightly different manner. He... He throws a couple twists in here. You know, because of that, you're never really sure. Is this supposed to be serious? Is it supposed to be comedy? Is it a revenge piece? Because it really shifts gears at a couple points in the movie. It does that. Um, that, that wasn't what I responded most favorably to necessarily. The the, the, twist, uh, the twists and the shifting gears. Even though I'm used to that stuff, obviously. Uh, this is, by all accounts, an independent production. It's not a Golden Harvest production. So he was jumping a little bit back and forth. Uh, you know, he was back uh, at Golden Harvest with... Um, 
I don't know if his uh, next movie after this was Prodigal Son or not, or maybe Carry On Pickpocket, but uh, certainly uh, Samo uh, was allowed to, uh, to go where the work is, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, you know, these movies always start sometimes in a gloomy manner with characters with conflict or, uh, you know, being serious about it or characters uh, in the dark talking of uh, I want this guy dead and, da, da, da. and that sometimes normally led to comedy of uh, pretty much low quality kind you know a great in comedy and uh, because everybody wanted to emulate uh, the character that Jackie Chan portrayed so well in his first uh, successful kung fu comedies with uh, Snake and Eagle Shadow so it's always that um that telltale sign is is indicative early in some kung fu movies whether this is going to try or not whether this is going to be funny or not and so sometimes you just know when you see the lead performer being a goofball but uh, it's uh, you have Samo here and normally he is either very funny or perfectly fine in this role and he certainly is here um, so I, I didn't fear that this would fall into the lazy kung fu comedy trappings um, for sure, and and I think he reassured me, Samo, very early on, uh, even before the credits uh, are over or they just passed. That one, we get a quick fight scene, a very quick, powerful, and fast takedown of uh, Chung Fat, who was also in Sue at the beginning, and uh, that isn't uh, mixed with broad comedy, you know, and uh, uh, or rather it. it it has light elements because this is a character that's accomplished already and here's the reversal of tropes Samo Hung is not uh, performing com- uh, Kung Fu as a character 60 minutes into the movie after he'd been taught and all of that no this character already knows his shit he knows very well how to be a good co- uh, Kung Fu comedy fighter uh, or co- Kung Fu fighter but he seeks some you know a proper master despite and i like that reversal of tropes I, i've never I, I can't think of many examples where i've seen someone fully trained uh having that motivation uh, in terms of the, the plotting that i just um uh told you of so that carries the movie quite well and, and also i don't know if if you know what specific move um fight scenes you didn't find as well shot but still for me it's mesmerizing the way samo goes from zero to a hundred in terms of a powerful choreography in like two or three powerful moves and he's off or his stuntmen they're off in terms of his choreography and i always find that mesmerizing how he he can be this light character like oh uh, and then boom 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 and he's off and that 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 never fails to um to mesmerize me uh it's certainly evident that this first fight with uh, chung fat and uh, a few other ones um throughout the movie um he definitely his style definitely sticks out here you can see you know because he's really going for some of the hard-hitting physical stuff that he becomes known for that makes him stand out a little bit different from the kind of stuff you would see in a jackie chan film per se and while there is comedy therein there's also a lot of i mean brutal stuff there's a in the final fight sequence the one that really sticks out in my mind is there's a scene where Lan Kayan is is facing off with um with Chang Yu, and he, there's a moment where he says to himself, "Do I am I really gonna have to kill this guy?" Which is basically his, you know, his stepbrother. And in that moment, uh, Chang Yu just gives him a super sidekick, and they really just 
it's one of those things where you know he was on a cable and they just cranked him back through a bunch of stuff and really fast. I don't know. They might have undercranked the camera a little bit, but you could tell he was getting jerked back by the the height that he had in the air and everything. And, and with emphasis on through a bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's a fun thing. They you just let, like line up furniture. And we're going to drag you through the furniture. Have fun. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's just, again, indicative of the kind of powerful imagery that Sammo strives for when it comes to doing uh, action direction. And, and that does stick out. The thing, I, I can't remember the scenes in particular, but in some of the fight sequences, rather than going with like a full shot of a guy getting a kick and then, you know, maybe hitting the ground or a longer sequence. And again, thinking back to comparisons with things like Iron Fisted Monk or Warriors 2, you know, especially that famous flying kick in Warriors 2, which mm-hmm. is like traveling across the entirety of the room and hitting, uh, I think it's Fong Hagong's character. You know, here it's it, it's almost a bit more MTV-ish in, in terms of the amount of edits within a certain scene of a fight sequence that I, I just, you know, it was something I noticed. It was something, and it, it might be indicative of the budget. If he had gone independent on this, he may not have had the time and the budget to really go through the sequences and get them exactly how he wanted, so he had to rely a little bit on editing. Yeah, it's it, and, and and fair enough, and it's uh, certainly uh, evident here and there. I, I didn't uh, focus on it as such. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I, I keep using the word mesmerizing, but uh, even uh, within that uh, five ten minute stretch of um, that opens the movie, we, we also get this intricate uh, uh, in terms of uh, how long shots last. Uh, fight sequence with uh, Sam with a three-section staff versus uh, whoever played that character and he's using a a blade, a big blade. And that's, you know, it's familiarity. We've seen these action scenes a bunch of times and almost the same concepts, if you will, but it never fails to elicit like that response with me, which just makes my jaw drop how... Fast. I mean, it's undercranked to a degree. You can always tell, but uh, it's never undercranked to an unnatural degree in my in my yeah. book. And it's never boring repeat either to see Samo weapons hand to hand and uh, and also with him at the forefront. There's a better chance with him that comedic banter, even though gags might not be classic and thought out, they might even be very juvenile. There's a chance that is always going to be either funny or at least tolerable versus another actor in a, in another independent movie doing the exact same thing so i mean that that speaks to sam as an actor too that um and an investment to into the fact that we're, we're gonna make a comedy we're gonna try and make it funny we're not gonna be like the 10 other indies that are shooting this week and we're not gonna be akin to their laziness just to sort of be present on the scene no we're, we're gonna make we're gonna make quality here He's kind of creepy, Samuel's character. He's so insistent on the premise that the movie, um, the movie um, uh, promises us that he invades uh, the, the house of Longayan and his wife. <laughs> you know, he comes into in through the window like, "Ah, oh, Sifu, Sifu." I, I thought that was very funny. I, I, creepy doesn't mean that there are creepy sequences where he's like oogling her or anything, but it's sort of this insistent, like he, he doesn't even knock on the door. He's just gonna go through the window because uh, you you you'll do you'll you'll do. You're a good uh, you're a good fighter. You'll be my master. No, well I'll come back in a little bit and we'll have a yeah. we'll have the talk again. Um, which leads to I think quite adorable scenes with uh, Langayan trying to avoid. Uh, and uh, trying to lose Samo in the streets, you know, at one point they run into this bathhouse. And I, I don't know why Samo had to mimic every move that Lungayan 
did in the bathhouse is this if this was some sort of task i think that passed me by but they're, they're certainly quite cute together and i have to say i've uh, stated on record that lungayan and kung fu comedy not my favorite mixture especially when he looks uh when he has the beard and looks as vicious as he does here there, there are certain movies where him playing the jackie chan role or a goofy uh, main character doesn't fit him but sam are putting to better use here and and certainly sometimes a little bit more underplayed as well uh, there's a latter sequence where sam is mocking him by having a conversation by himself but uh, going from side to side and uh, mimicking lungayan's uh, way of speaking uh, to him you know it goes to the right side being sammo goes to the left side being lungayan and lungayan turns like when he hears that when he hears he's being mocked and doesn't shout like stop but he turns to him and like what the heck <laughs> you know and i, I like that he's, uh, Samo realizes that um, he's got a vicious looking and a, a great on-screen fighter on on display and at his disposal but if we're going to make him work within the comedy we, we got to think of new angles that are going to make it a little make it work because he might as well be in the villain Longayan. he looks like he could have been the villain easily as well so you, you gotta have a little think of uh, how to produce that not saying this is comedy gold but i'm saying that someone looked at this ad and thought hmm there's always uh, trying to figure out new concepts for our kung fu comedies rather than do the same old so let's try and do the former instead um but but when all is said and done is it funny uh, for you or merely amusing kind of thing yeah, it's fine. I mean, uh, when I think of Lung Kayan doing comedy, it's definitely not from this era. I think he got he's got to get a bit older, you know, and get into the into the late '90s when he's making comedic cameos and stuff, and he's fine doing that. But here, because he's, he's so buff, he's so toned, he's so handsome, you know, he he's got to be the straight man, and I think that really works well here. You know, you get into the scene of the whole washroom, though. You talk about creepy. <laughs> That's <laughs> when it really starts to get creepy, um, because you've got basically just a fight scene with naked dudes, right? And uh, they do some really clever camera work. I mean, it's not to the level of a, of a Richard M sequence or anything. <laughs> um, but, you know, pretty darn close because you've got these guys who are fighting and... A lot, of, a lot of buttholes on screen. Yeah. You see a lot of butts, but you never see any doodles. And so, you know, that's... When you're moving around doing fight choreography, you got to figure that takes some pretty good staging, you know, and some pretty good... Uh, coordination and and making sure that the shots just right and angles aren't off and who knows maybe they were wearing those you know front pieces you you can't really tell but even so you've got samuel going in going in and grabbing guys noodles and things at certain points at certain angles and uh it's not what i was expecting to see at that particular point so it works well when you tally it up i think both jackie and samuel have uh, appeared uh, a lot nude on screen you know jackie showing his butt in the young master and samuel being uh well he's obscured but he is uh, seemingly naked in encounters of the spooky kind when he's got all the writing on him and things like that so they they, they weren't shy they weren't shy i i think um concepts certainly like, like there's concepts to the fight choreography at times it's just it isn't just fighting but there, there are concepts like Langayan you know having his wife with him and trying to get her out of the way and at one point I think she's essentially piggybacking him while he fights off either three people at one time four people at one time or several waves of uh, one henchman at a time and I, I kind of dig that. It, it's it felt it looked unusual to me. This concept. I mean, the, I, I love these clear, fast movements where where Samo and team designs the action, directing to almost pause for a slight beat, 
and then a punch you know pause and punch pause and punch as they change up uh, positions and all of that so that, that allows for clarity but doesn't stop the fight scene and uh, and as i said we get a full view of it all and and what i totally like and what i took away from this viewing uh well it was the first viewing but i really took away the following thing long guy um as as i said we he's played bad guys he does does that very well he's a good guy here but his animalistic intensity when he's solo fighting versus wave upon wave of um, of people is impactful and also mesmerizing because when he goes animalistic there's few that can rival him because he he looks it and the way he responds to a choreography that sama and his team asks of him that's really classic stuff you believe that he's fighting his way out of a situation you know uh, he's strong but he certainly isn't Superman, and uh, that it's uh, fighting for his life, he's fighting for his for his wife. So, the the animalistic rage that um, you can tap into when it comes to Long Gaia is uh, here on full display, and I really really enjoy that. Thoughts on that personally? Uh, you know, good guy Long Gaia, but uh, a, a fierce one within fight scenes. Is that um, is that um, appealing to you? Yeah, I think you know he he's got a, definitely got a good screen presence, and he is able to promote the concept of his physicality and power in the scenes he's in, especially when you've got the action team of Samo guiding him and, and, you know, directing that so that it looks so powerful and so good on the camera. I think that in terms of the the dynamic that's set up here, though, I mean, sort of the motivation between him and his wife and then the this guy who is technically his stepbrother um played by Chang Chang Yu the character of uh, Joe Wing that's probably the weakest point for me in the film because it's like this guy is the power the son of a powerful person um who adopts the Leung Kaiyan character as we learn in a later flashback the, these two as half brothers or stepbrothers have bad blood but we don't really get a lot of insight into that bad blood. And so ultimately this is all brought about because he marries uh, the Yi Yi character, the wife character falls in love with Lung Kaiyan and marries him and rejects the Chang Yu character who I guess he was originally destined to marry. And he has this soul obsession with her for some reason. Mm -hmm. And he wants to rape, he tries to rape her on the wedding night. And it's like, uh, this guy could probably get any girl he wants this soul obsession with her that drives him and him commanding like all his men like to go and and do all this fighting for him just for her it feels a bit thin i mean it's like i think they needed to do further backstory development of this sort of hatred that he has for his brother because otherwise it just comes across there's this thing where he wears an eye patch and it's mentioned i don't know did you see a scene a flashback scene that that revealed this because in my version it was mentioned that the Lung Kaiyun character was responsible for the loss of his eye, but we never see how that comes about, what happens. No, he always he always has his jade eye patch, which is a fantastic piece of bling, by the way. So speaking of getting any girl he wants, you know, he's carrying, you know, <laughs> he's carrying uh, like a fantastic, unusual looking bling. Uh, having said that, is jade valuable, by the way? <laughs> if it's true, pure jade, yeah, it can yeah, be. Yeah, okay, cool. 
Yeah, yeah, I, can, I, I kind of agree. Like the story, it, it, because it tries to be serious for for a few beats, even though it's uh, quite packed. Uh, that that story is, um, I wouldn't say cookie cutter because uh, it's not very usual to get this, but uh, it's it certainly um, just dealt with a little bit uh, too loosely for be true to be truly affecting and for the melodrama to reach us because there, there is there is melodrama at one, at one point. Uh, it's the father of both, but one is uh, not a legitimate son, I suppose, and they they both go to grief you know despite being um being enemies and that is sort of melodrama doesn't reach us because the setup isn't uh, as sufficient as, as as it should be as you just described uh because i think like, like the serious bits necessarily didn't uh, affect me as such I, I was watching this almost purely on a kung fu comedy um comedy level um oh, oh i wanted to mention by the way i forgot the, 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 those various um waves of fighters that long Ayan takes on i might be forgetting but i don't remember a lot of, of samo's own fight scenes involving him versus a lot of people at once and if it hasn't been like that then maybe he saw that the advantage of having long Ayan here in his skill is that they're able to sell one against two three or four a lot better through his again the animalistic intensity that he brings uh, so, so again, I'm, I'm going so, sort of by gut feeling that a, lot, a few things are unusual here, and he's using his the performance to his advantage. And uh, certainly, one thing I, I can't remember from many Samba movies or any Samba movies is this uh, quite distinctive focus on um, on footwork during fight scenes, which I'm sure is a, dis- a fight style that you can train in. But I don't know anything about this stuff. But it, we, we certainly get it a bit more full on on display when Wilson Tong enters the movie at uh, one point and uh, it, it certainly looks uh, like a, a little standout aspect of the movie that uh, there, there's going to be footwork not kicking but uh, like fo- footwork and characters being almost entangled in each other as they try to gain an advantage through their footwork versus their opponent's uh, footwork um, do you know personally uh, if you're interested in martial arts if that is a particular style or is it pure pure cinema it, it looked a little bit like he was blending some mantis style, but again, it was kind of very, very much focused for cinematic effect. And with that character, it was also kind of strange because he just kind of is brought over as an extra boss battle. Yeah, yeah, he's in it for like two or three scenes, and two of them are fight scenes. I think. I mean, I don't know if you want to if you want to spoil the. Shyamalan-esque kind of reveal that that ends up happening. I mean, you kind of predict it going on, but there's an additional twist that I did not predict or see coming. But it really breaks away from some of the established dual roles to this point because it really puts a lot of the focus on Lung Yan as the Superman, mm-hmm. um, the, the way they end up, you know, sort of going with the story in this. You know, I because I was expecting that it was going to be you know, you had the the Wilson Tong character brought over, and okay, I was like, oh, it's going to be two for two. You know, that's the very sort of standard face-off we've seen in previous Samo movies. And okay, you know, but then they, again, they kind of take that idea and they, they play with it and throw it out a little bit. So the twist is that there's, there's these shadowy figures making a deal, and you, you don't see who they are, you just hear voices, but it's kind of obvious who they are. It was was for me, and th- then that is of course revealed to be Huamaist, right? Taking on this job, and then then he completes the job. Remember, but then there's a sort of a you know a, a twist on that, right? Which you kind of expect coming, and then it's like, ha ha, you know, we tricked you. 
But then it's like, okay, you know, Snowmax did his thing, and now, oh, what just happened? You know, because at this point, it would be that you know a, tra- a traditional way would be okay, kill the gram, kill the mom, and then now you've got these two guys wanting revenge, and one will fight Wilson Tong, and the other will fight Chang Yu, and you know maybe they have to switch because the styles don't match or something, and they're getting beaten up, you know. But no, it's just it kind of says, well, we did this twist, and then this twist, and now here's a third twist. We're just gonna kill this character, and it's gonna be all on Lung yeah, it's not necessarily honed. I think it might be experimentation that uh, didn't pan out necessarily as uh, like in a clinched five out of five way, which Samo often did with his movies. He kept up a high quality throughout his uh, Kung Fu pictures uh, during this era. You know, um, Warriors 2 remains a favorite for 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 reasons you you mentioned and um, and and that I mean, I mean the wonderful creative twist in warriors 2 was that they they tried to pair everybody up with uh, their style versus the opponent's style and make the match correct and then Sam Hung's character goes to the wrong guy and gets to fight someone who who has a different style than he is than his and he has to adapt and that becomes right. a clever part of Warriors too. It's it's the fight that leads into like the, the dark bamboo uh, area, the bad bamboo forest, and it's a quite a brutal, um, ferocious fight. So maybe it goes to show that uh, working indie, there's gonna be a slight flimsy, flimsy creativity here um, versus Golden Harvest, but uh, certainly nothing that sinks uh, sinks the cinema as we as we discussed and. Uh, it's a great showcase for that kind of aggress- aggression and intensity. And Chang Yi, I mean, uh, he, he looks great in the movie, and I don't think he's doubled extensively. It's one of those performances that, for the life of me, I can't remember him being in a lot of kung fu movies, per se. But I think it's a great... I have the image in front of me of him being a great villain in in uh, in, in Wu Xiaopian type of movies uh, but he's been all over the place obviously his, his, that filmography is endless I might be forgetting a lot of appearances so uh, you, you know pardon me for that I might, it might even be a staple of uh, Samos <laughs> movies you know but uh, let's uh, scroll through it uh, well he, he worked in Taiwan a lot so I don't don't I, I think it comes down to that that uh, there's some Taiwanese work here but uh, so certainly, if you if you scroll through like uh, victim and onwards and a little bit backwards, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of Hong Kong work necessarily. But always a um, a uh, a nice presence to have, and, and especially if he's made up to be a a villain within fantasy and swordplay, uh, that uh, that that face is brought out a little bit uh, a little bit more. But uh, it was cool to see him um, in an almost pure kung fu role um, here, and uh, looking good doing so, in my opinion. Uh, so that, that's the end of my notes. So I'll, I'll, I'll give, give the floor to you and share share whatever else whatever else you want to share. I, I, a couple last things to talk about um, I, in terms of some of the cast. You do have uh, Carl Maka here as a, a sort of a high abbot who Samo gets to use as a punching bag, and it's a funny sequence, especially considering that Carl Maka was the producer of this film. So I don't know if there's a some some subtle some subtle imagery in there or not, you know, and, and they do that classic thing. Well, you know, it's like, we'll each exchange punches and see who can, who can stand it the longest kind of thing. And it plays out fairly funny. Um, let's see. You also have Wilson Chin here, director of the inspector wears skirts series of films. And he shows up, I think, in, as one of the minor characters in the bathhouse scene as well. So you can keep your eye peeled for him. They do mention Yun Biao as one of the background fighters, tried finding him i didn't spot him though uh, so if you've got a better 
better reaction on the pause button, you can scan through and see if you can pick him up. Yeah, I landed uh, landed on Lam Qingying easier than I did Yun Biu. Uh, I spotted Lam Qingying in uh, in one scene, one of the horde uh, waves or and hordes of fighter scenes. You can see uh, Lam Qingying quite clearly. Um, but I, I think in terms of the biggest WTF moment of the film, uh, we have a, se- a sequence where they are burying one of the characters, uh, this would be the bad guy's henchman, and uh, Samu decides that to get them to run away because they want to get the body, uh, he's going to dress up as a certain famous gothic horror monster. Certainly not Eastern in, in the true uh, sense of the world. Which is very odd because I'm thinking, all right, I'm not exactly sure the time period that this is taking place. It's got to be post-Ching because they're not wearing cues. But, you know, it's still, you know, it doesn't look like a lot of places have electricity and stuff like that. So not super modern either. That particular image of that particular character is set in, you know, 1931. So I'm just thinking... Okay, is this working out time-wise or is it not working out time-wise? And but 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 regardless, it's still quite funny to see uh, Samo dressed up in that for whatever reason. I don't know. It, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during the production meeting when you know if he came up with that or one of the writers uh, came up with that and said, you know what would be funny? You know, we're just gonna dress Samo up like uh, Bella Lugosi. <laughs> so. <laughs> And I'm I'm essentially a boss, so no one can say no to me. So action, yeah. And and I'm and I'm gonna play him. So uh, the, the the if anyone's gonna take the fall, it's gonna be me. Yeah, it's not a sequence that stuck with me necessarily. I, I when I watched it, I was thinking more of the quite extensive and, and funny sequence in the Dead of a Deadly, where Samo plays this um, uh, paper uh, paper puppet that's uh, due to be uh, burned uh, during a funeral service and all of that. But he's obviously uh, the real thing. He's um, smuggling himself into the funeral parlor and to. Uh, check out uh, Wuma's teeth essentially there's a fun little bit there and so by the end of this film they really go for a very old school ending a certain character kind of shows up and there's a brief moment of a sort of a comedic shout and freeze frame and that's the end end f off <laughs> like go home <laughs> We put you through all this strategy and we got we to gotta leave you with a smile right at the end. So Exactly. There you go. Even after the most horrendous uh, bloodshed, sometimes these movies uh, have the balls to... Uh, uh, I think one of Samuel's movies, possibly Warriors 2, is uh, where he, him and Casanova Wong are walking out from that bloodshed and he trips over Casanova Wong and the camera freezes on that. <laughs> you know, And he, he, the movie had comedy, but it was pretty fairly dark. And yeah. that, that ending is, you know, intense and violent, uh, even though Dean Chek pisses his pants uh, in Warriors 2. But uh, yeah, classical Hong Kong stuff. Uh, but as for availability of the victim, uh, Tai Seng put out a DVD in the US that was cropped to uh, 1.33, while the UK VHS by Eastern Heroes and subsequently their DVD had a wide transfer framed at uh, 185, meaning it was partially cropped. Um, the, the VHS was subtitled and the DVD was subtitled and dubbed and uh, that, that's available for a reasonable price still on the Amazon UK marketplace uh, also it's available on Amazon Prime UK uh, presumably it's their version but I, I don't have Prime so I, I don't know but on the US side where you watched The Victim on Amazon Prime a streaming video did the US version have the wide print or was it a fully cropped version? It wasn't a full wide print. It felt like it was cropped a little bit. So right, but but maybe they uh, they had that par- only partially cropped the print then because yeah. uh, it wasn't a completely um, completely uh, cut out fights and characters and stuff. 
No, no, but it, it it did feel like it was slightly cropped off, and it is only available as the uh, dubbed version. So great that they weren't forced to uh, take on the Tai Seng transfer only. Then, uh, then that that white print is making the rounds because currently there's no um, um, no struck full two three five print uh, available. Obviously, it probably exists. But uh, it's not out there currently. But uh, you can still get it. I saw it for like eight uh, eight pounds, um, bridge pounds. So uh, while some sold it for like sixty, so there, there, there's uh, different price levels to go for there. Uh, you know, a used copy doesn't mean it's uh, been handled a little bit too roughly necessarily. Uh, I bet a used copy will look fine. So 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 go for it uh, for for a couple of pounds. That's it, my friends. Uh, nice uh, nice discussion of two different movies, but uh, both featuring Samo. We we got a connection there. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, thank you, Paul, for uh, participating as always, bringing uh, bringing uh, a nuanced uh, perspective and uh, educated perspective and all of that. And, and and going back to Sue, by the way, you uh, you mentioned um, it's a fairly recent TV series. Uh, did you ever um, watch that or any other incarnation of um, Sue on TV, or or you never knew of it before now? No, when we were doing research for the episode, I did uh, take a look at the TV series first episode. Just briefly, it is called The Legend of Zoo Mountain, and I think it's William Chan, who some you know Hong Kong followers may so he's a fairly recent actor, uh, with him in sort of the uh, Ding Yan role played by Adam Chang. But it looks fairly different. It looks fairly extensive. Again, a lot more characters. I think it's 40, 30 or 40 something episodes, so it's pretty lengthy. If you do a little bit of searching and you're interested, um, you know, you can check your various U's and your various tubes and you can find uh, episodes around there that have English subtitles and see if you want to get into it. Which is fair enough. Uh, I always believe that uh, you're allowed to sample a product uh, before you decide. Uh, but uh, obviously, that's a controversial opinion. Uh, I, 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 I mainly think that's okay for TV series, you know, to see if it uh, floats your boat or not. Because you don't want to spend like 60, 70 bucks on a big uh, DVD set or, or whatever. And uh, and find out that it sucks 10 minutes in. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, we are done. Some very, very quick contact information before we sign off. And this has been Podcast on Fire. We're available on podcastonfire.com. So if you like uh, shows that uh, talk about uh, Hong Kong cinema, new and old, this has been the show that uh, does that very thing. But we also have shows on Japanese cinema, Korea cinema, sleazy cinema, movies, uh, shows with ninjas in them, and shows that feature audio commentaries for movies. So uh, hit us up over at podcastonfire.com. Follow the handy buttons to our social media presences including facebook and uh, we have the link to our itunes feed as well and uh, that's uh, pretty much uh, pretty much it i plug myself so i'm not gonna do it again but uh, seeing as you are the always uh, always always special co-host and uh, in essence co-producer as well because you are producing the content you get a full firm plug of your podcast so the floor is yours Thank you. It is East Screen West Screen and you can find us over at concast.com and if, again if you're not solely looking for Hollywood or not solely looking for Asian films, but a little bit of a mix in between, you know, give us a listen. Cool. And as always, I firmly recommend uh, these guys uh, uh, weekly, uh, almost always weekly, hourly show, uh, breaking down news and uh, and uh, giving us reviews of the latest uh, latest out of um, Asia, Hong Kong or not. So and also from the West. So thanks for that. And uh, thanks for coming on. So uh, I've been Kennedy and with me was the great Paul Fox. So say bye bye. Bye-bye.